This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Guilt says that you've done something wrong. Shame says who you are is wrong. And I felt like I had been shamed out of these communities that I had dedicated so much of myself to. When they came on and they said talking about race was heretical, was anti-gospel, was social justice warrior, Marxist, I felt like they're saying, Jamar, who you are is wrong. And I've said this for the longest. If you are black in these spaces, you either get pushed out, burned out, or you sell out. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Well, Jamar, last week you told your Leave Loud story, and brother, it blew up, man. It's been a ride since that episode came out. We had a hunch. We had an inkling. But we really had no idea. I've been blown away. Uh, the response has been overwhelming and a bit surprisingly, almost entirely positive and supportive. So thank you to all of our listeners, all the folks who have tuned in time and time and again, our longtime listeners, and to all our new listeners. Uh, thank you for tuning in to these stories. Well, man, it was a beautiful, brave, bold story, and I'm so glad you told it. I'm also glad you told it because that gives me now a little bit of a runway to share my Leave Loud story. And I guess that's what this episode is supposed to be, brother. Yes, yes. This episode is your Leave Loud story and is going to be you telling us your story. But I got to tell the people this. I am eager to hear your story because honestly, as well as we know each other, I don't know much of it. And one of the things folks listening have to realize about Tyler is he is one of the rare souls who is content, even eager, not to be in the spotlight. He likes to be where the action is because he's a doer, but he likes to strategize, work with and through other people. And and partly because of that, we don't hear as much of his story, but I know enough of your story <laughs> to know that you've been through th- some things. You've been through yeah, some things. Yeah. And so I'm I'm eager to hear because I, I, I know you and I want to know you more and better, but I'm also kind of wincing because <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, because I know there's some there's some stuff in there that's going to be really, really hard to for you to recount and, and hard for folks to hear. But this is what it's about. You ready for this? Let's do it. This is Leave Loud on Pass the Mic. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. 
Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Okay, Jamar, before we jump into this in full, I have to set up something that's coming next week. I didn't feel it was right to tell my story without looking to where my story begins with my father. He and I sat down for a talk that'll go out on next week's podcast, but I want to give you all just a taste now to set up my family story, specifically the racism that my brother and sister experienced attending the same school I did. I'll talk a little bit more about that with you, Jamar, but Before going into my story, take a listen to this little clip from a conversation that'll go out next week between me and my father. My first reality check was when Wellington was in junior high school. Uh It was after school. I was coming to pick him up. He was in a circle with all white guys. And I walked up from this guy saying, you're not allowed. Your kind huh. is not allowed in this circle. You wow. And then I, I I called the school on that. Wow. I called the school. And then Destiny okay. tells me she's at lunch and the guy keeps joking about KK, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. And she tells her that is offending me. Stop. He's a staff child, wow. staff member child. She went to the office and told them he wouldn't stop. Wow. That guy got brought in. I think he was not allowed to play football that year or basketball that year. Yeah. He got reprimanded, and she caught a lot of heat from her uh, female classmates yeah, because of that. Because he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted, but he didn't get expelled. Didn't get expelled. <laughs> and then in her senior year of high school, they're walking across the street in Washington, D.C. A bunch of black guys drive by and whistles at one of the girls and one of the white uh, girls yells out the n-word real you are loud. kidding me oh you never heard of that I that one i that. did not know that was her senior trip in oh man yeah wellington and destiny had it so much worse than me but i don't think it could have been i was just blind to it and ignorant of it but yeah those are traumatic experiences Well, so that's my dad. <laughs> wow, bro. Wow. Uh, that was powerful, man. I'm so glad you did that. And I'm so glad we have that perspective. One of the things that 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 people will know about you sometime within the first conversation is that you ride hard for Pensacola. Yes, man, I do. <laughs> and you know, what's so interesting about Pensacola is that It is a city with a fraught racial history. And so when we talk about my father and my family coming to Pensacola and my family forming in Pensacola, it's important to understand that that our origin here is important to the broader narrative of our lives. And Pensacola is a place of Black resistance. You know, Booker T. Washington mentioned that Pensacola was the, the standard or the model city for Negro advancement. At the turn of the 1900s, we had a black mayor, black alderman, black sheriff. It was a very progressive place for black people. But as many places in the South were, as we started to expand in black leadership and black entrepreneurship and advancement, there was a wave of, of white racial terror. There were two prominent lynchings 
about two minutes away from where I'm sitting right now, my office downtown in Ferdinand Plaza. And that those lynchings are actually documented at the lynching memorial that Brian Stevenson has at the Equal Justice um, Initiative. And so, yeah, it's interesting that we're here, but I think it's also providential that we're here because even though a lot of Black people had to leave and flee because of that racial terror, there's some who stayed and what they did was incredible and it was resistance in the midst of that racial terror. So there's a a, a long history. Did you know this history growing up? No, <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I did not know this history. And much of my life has been asking that question and also me taking every single opportunity I can to not just tell the history of my city from a Black perspective, but to tell my history from a Black perspective, our history from a Black perspective, because I believe it's so often been hidden from us and kept from us. Yes, that's often the case where we have grown folks learning about racial history and saying, I never knew. They never taught us this. But you were a Black man in America, in Pensacola, which, as we say, you know, it's, it's, it's more like South Alabama. I don't know if I can say that. That's <laughs> yeah. whatever. It's uh, lower Alabama. That's what we call it. <laughs> L.A., lower Alabama, man. Absolutely. So what was it like growing up as a black kid in this environment? Well, you know, my father talks about this in the segment, but growing up was confusing because of being in a mixed Christian environment. And what I mean is a denominationally confusing environment. So I had my non-denominational church, which was Pentecostal charismatic on one side. And then I had my private white Christian school on the other side. And as I was mentioning, every time I would interact with my Christian school theologically, they were telling me that what I was experiencing, either implicitly or explicitly, on my formation, my spiritual formation side with my church was wrong. And not just wrong, because I think that's underselling it, but that it was pagan Mm. and that it was worldly. So we were taught from a young age at the Christian school that any movement of our body was flesh. So the carnality was not just in our actions, but it was in our body movement. So the, the literal presence of a black body expressing itself in creativity, in movement, in rhythm, in syncopation was evil in and of itself. That that's just, it's flesh. Um, And so I started to get that message from a young age. I also started to get the message that, you know, you you don't physically respond to messages or any sort of spiritual interaction or engagement. So like, for example, if someone sings a solo in a chapel, we were not allowed to clap or say anything. Mm -hmm. If someone preaches, we were not allowed to do call and response. It's one of the reasons why I believe in call and response so much now, because we were banned from call and response in in those sectors. So anything that could be culturally black or coded as a part of our expression, I was taught was evil. And then I go to church on Wednesday night, Sunday morning, and it is explosive and it is full body, but I never felt permission to participate in that. Because I was hearing Monday through Friday, my body, there's something wrong with my body Mm. and my body is wrong. And the movements of my body that felt natural to me and native to my bones and to my DNA were wrong. 
and they were evil and they were fleshly and they were the work of Satan. Right. Um, and then you, you, you kind of build on top of that, all of the racial messaging that we were receiving. And this kind of gets into an interaction that I had with a fifth grade teacher. I had an interaction with my B teacher in fifth grade. It's interesting because my A teacher in fifth grade was actually, or my homeroom teacher, as we we called it, was actually the only black teacher I've ever had. Ever. Ever. Her name was Miss Robinson. And now, ironically, she is actually an actor in Hollywood. She's huh. an actress in Hollywood. So her name was Miss Robinson. And so she was a black teacher. And then on the other side, my B teacher was was a white woman. And I remember we were, she was teaching us math and science and we had a math problem and I wasn't getting it. And so she stands over me, she's trying to help me see the math problem and all this stuff. And, you know, I just wasn't comprehending. I've never been great at math. And it's still true to this yeah, day. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And she says, wow, Tyler, you can't get this problem. I said, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I'm just trying to understand. And she says, no, you just must be cursed. What? Yeah. So I, <laughs> I remember I was like, mm. and what's so ironic about this, uh, Jamar, is the only curse I was familiar with at the time was what we commonly call the curse of Ham, mm-hmm. which was a curse found in Genesis, Noah, drunkenness, his sons, curses Canaan, Ham's descendants. And so I had read that because I was a voracious Bible reader. So I was thinking, oh, well, I'm cursed like Ham. Now, I, I was not connecting those racial lines or seeing the layers of the theology. I wasn't. I just associated that with that because that's the only time I'd ever heard of a curse right. or I could ever remember hearing of curses, right? Right. So on top of that, there was a shame that was attached to you know, people telling me you know, things about myself and treating me differently from other classmates and other people and then stamping Christian language on top. There it is. There it is. Yes. And then taking Christianese and Christian principles and baking it into their white supremacy. And this was not just theologically, but this was also historically in teaching everything. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I I got so many questions, man. This is some of the first time I've heard this. Okay. First of all, have we seen Mrs. Robinson in movies or commercials or anything? Feel like yes, I feel like she was on CSI or something. I have to look oh, her up. Snap. She friended me recently, um, <laughs> probably like six or seven years ago. And yeah, we gotta like, see this. Yo, that's Miss Robinson. And she goes, I, I think she got married, so she has a different name now. And uh, I'm just glad she got out. Listen, I'm just glad right, Ms. right, Robinson right. Got out. Living <laughs> yeah. the best life. But I think she was in C- CSI or NCIS or something like that. But yeah, she's a she's an actress in Hollywood. That's quite the glow up. That's quite the glow up. We got to track that down. Um, Mrs. Robinson, you taught Tyler Burns in Pensacola. If you're listening, reach out. Um, the other thing that I, I, I'm stuck on and we got to go back to is this is a private white Christian school. Yes. Yes. And you're a black kid from a black family. How did you yeah. even end up there? Yeah. My father talks a little bit about this. I think it was one of those things that because of his background in white Christian environments, it shaped the way he saw everything about the world. And it shaped the way my parents perceived the world and perceived how children should be involved in the world. So for them, their perception was 
overtly and explicitly it was, we need to give our child a great foundation. Now, here's an overwhelming positive of that, because I learned how to speak well and articulate. So now I can use the master's tools against the master. Hmm. Okay, so that's one positive. So, and, and I will take every opportunity to do so. Thank you for teaching me how to speak well. How to speak like they speak, basically. Yes, I learned how to speak the, the king's in- English to the queen's taste. I learned how to do it. <laughs> so now I can use that against the masters, but now I, I speak more authentically based upon my context so I can do both. Um, but so that was number one was the idea of giving me a quote unquote solid Christian foundation, whatever mm-hmm. that may mean, mm-hmm. whatever white Christians mean when they say that. But then I think secondarily, I believe that the what Willie Jennings talks about in terms of the the formation of theological education or Christian education oftentimes being a formation of plantation owners or slave masters or people who mirror plantation owners was also baked into this. And and what I mean by that is whenever, whenever there was an archetype of what a Christian child looked like, it was always a white blonde haired boy. And so the, the, the subtle, the subtle insinuation is if you're not, carrying yourself like a white blonde haired boy, even if you are a woman, even if you are black, even if you are another ethnicity, if you were not carrying yourself like that, there was something deficient in you and you needed to repent of your sin and get in line with the truth, which was expressed in the form of a white blonde haired boy. My, my, my. So, so that's why I think there was this there's also this subtle sense of if you only look up to certain authority figures and certain authority figures have only been white men historically for you, you'll pattern not just yourself after them, you'll pattern your children and your discipleship after them as well. Say that again. Yeah. So if you only see white men as authority figures in Christian spaces, you won't just pattern yourself after them, but you'll pattern your discipleship practices and your child rearing practices after them as well. Yeah. Yeah. See, we need to hear that. We need to hear that this is this is generational. It impacts not just our formation, but how how we how we form our children. That's that's yes. huge. A couple um, other quick questions, and we move on because you got a lot more to say. Was this school in a particular denomination or tradition? Yes. Okay. So yes, great question. So this was the Independent Fundamental Baptist tradition. Ooh. So this was the flagship school. So yes. So you're not just getting white Christianity. You're getting a very extreme fundamentalist version, only the KJV 1611 translation, um, only the the authorized version, you know, you have to carry yourself in a service. So it's a very heavy, it's a high dosage of indoctrination. And this is, they, they use what, what many people would know and really created the Abeka book curriculum. Yeah. So this is the homeschooling curriculum that is often used by Christians uh, across the country and sadly around the world as well. Okay, you say sadly. Why is it sadly that so many Christian schools use this Abeka curriculum? <sighs> Jamar, 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 man. <laughs> I'm setting you up. It's it's at the very least wildly problematic. And let me give you an example. I got a, I got a. You hear these pages? I got an actual history book here. <laughs> okay, you got the receipts. Uh, yeah, I got history of civilization. Um, I don't know which, I think this would probably be a high school book, if I'm not mistaken. Hear what they say about Nelson Mandela. 
All right, hmm. you ready for this? Mm, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> through the 1980s, the UN continued to sponsor heavy trade sanctions against South Africa in protest of the racial policy of apartheid. These sanctions caused widespread suffering and unemployment, catch this, especially among black South Africans and immigrants from other African nations, weakening the legitimate government's attempt to achieve gradual reform while resisting communism. Mm. Okay. This is on, okay, for, for someone who's wondering, this is on page 449. Okay, I'm going to page 450. All right, don't, don't play with me. Here, listen. Um, okay. The South African government released Marxist agitator wow. and head of the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela, from prison in 1990, agreed to share power with the ANC, long dominated by the South African Communist Party. Now, here's what's going to make you fall out laughing. See if this doesn't make you laugh. In 1994, in the 1994 elections, the ANC gained control of the South African Parliament and Nelson Mandela became the first black president of South Africa. The elections were marked by widespread fraud, Uh. especially directed against the moderate black Zulu candidates who opposed the ANC and feared totalitarian rule. Now, here's the part that's going to make you laugh. Mandela campaigned with communist leaders and was often photographed raising a clenched fist, the victory salute of communist terrorists. Mm. Mm. So the clenched fist, which is now the Pastor Mike Loco. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> is the clenched fist of communist terrorists in South Africa. This they is went on wild. to call affirmative action uh, radical. That the, the, the practice of affirmative action was radical. This is in 1990. I'm reading y'all two paragraphs of a 500-page book. Y'all hear the pages. So I'm reading original sources. In another book, they say that less than, if not, I think they say less than 10% of Africans can read and write. Wow. I'm I'm serious. This is all. So imagine, imagine this. There was, and this is the truth for me as a perceptive, intuitive, young black boy. There is no distinction between me and the Africans. I look just Mm. like them. So I am them. So you're not just talking about Africans. You're talking about African-Americans. You're not just talking about them. You're talking about my people. I don't think, and I actually look through this and I, I could be wrong, but I don't think there was one in this book. I don't think there was more than one or two positive black portrayals of any figure in the history of civilization. Wow. I, I don't I don't think so. In in all of the I mean, this is from the start of history all the way up until now. And this might be a college textbook, honestly. It might be. It might be. I, I don't know. But it is it, definitely an, an upper level middle school, high school, or college textbook. And this is this is common. I'm reading you two paragraphs. Imagine, imagine what else lies within this book. That's right. That's right. And so many people have used this curriculum. As uh, did you have any idea when you, when you were learning this how how much violence it it was doing to black people? I didn't realize it until they started talking about slavery when I was in middle school. They started talking about slavery and. The idea of owning someone was, 
I don't care how conservative I was. That was way off the, completely off the pale, off the side. Hmm. Hmm. But what they did was, I remember them saying that while some slaveholders and masters beat their slaves, and you all can look this up. Seriously, look up, Google a Becca book, slavery. Just Google it. You'll find some sources. Hmm. I remember hearing that most of the slaveholders treated their slaves well. Ah. And I remember that was a trigger for me. That's when I said, oh, I don't think that's, that's right. I don't think that's true. And that was the first time I said, oh, that sounds wildly biased. And what then in college, was this was, I think this was eighth grade, I want to say eighth grade history. Yeah. Eighth grade mm-hmm. history of freshman year, one of those two, because it's an academy. So I just, I attended there for 13 years. Goodness. Um, and then I went to the college for two years. Yeah. Sunk, sunk, sunk. And um, so it's funny. This is another story that was very interesting. There's a guy who recently wrote an article for The Witness. His name is Ben, Ben Sebrill. And what's ironic is Ali did not know that Ben and I were friends. We actually attended PCC together. And Ben and I were in a history class sophomore year of college, and we were just kind of both zoned out. I think we were sitting on opposite sides of the classroom, and we were the only two black students in that classroom. And then the the teacher says, yeah, you know, slavery, I don't know why people make a big deal about it. It wasn't even that bad. And all I remember is we were both out of it, and we both immediately at the same time lifted up our heads and looked at each other completely across the room. Mm-hmm. And we were like, what? Like we both looked at each other like, what? And so I, I mentioned these stories to tell you that this was going on, but but not to think of this as just simply, if this is how they teach history mm. and if the racial trauma that they allow black students to undergo without repercussion is normative. And if we have multiple stories of this, imagine the microaggressions, imagine the daily toll, imagine the stress, imagine what it's like to be Black in these environments. And not just in these extreme environments, but in all white Christian environments. Imagine what we have to deal with. And so one of the things that I say, you know, whenever we talk about Leave Loud is when you think about it, man, hey, Leave loud, not just for yourself, but leave loud for your children and the generations that will follow after you. My goodness. Um, So one of the things that you said struck me, you said, you know, something to the effect of no matter how conservative I was, this stuck out to me. Would you describe, would you describe yourself as conservative in this season of life, K through 12 kind of thing? Listen, (laughs) if sunk were a person. (laughs) If sunk were a person, put my face up. They, they, <laughs> they passed this version of sink in the dictionary, and you see a, a picture of me in there wow. smiling, a toothy smile with a big head. No, nah, man, and and I think I was I was reading everything, so it wasn't that I wasn't exposed to liberal thought. I was reading everything. I remember the first one of the first books that I read was that really 
just sparked in me an insatiable desire to read more was Race Matters by Cornel West. Mm-hmm. And I read Race Matters, I, I mean, I, I think it was middle of high school. And I just wanted to read everything then because he was just a brilliant writer to me. So he's just a brilliant writer to me. So I just wanted to read everything. But I was also reading Tom Soul to yeah. critique and to offset Cornell West. Right. And so I was I was kind of carrying everything through the strainer of conservative thought. And not just conservative thought, but almost no conservative must be right at the end. I, I it no matter what I read from an opposing side or viewpoint, it's not gonna cause me to change my my beliefs. Yeah, the confirmation bias of it all. You you, yeah, you, you huge, read something huge. different just to take it down. Well, what's wild is it didn't end there. So you 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 graduate high school. By the way, weren't you something like like the first black student body president or something? Yeah, I was the first black senior class president. To my knowledge, there may have been one other, but as far as I knew, I was the first black senior class president. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but it didn't end there. So you went to this uber conservative fundamentalist uh, Christian school growing up. And then for college, where'd you choose? Well, so it's interesting. I went to uh, PCC for two years and then I was going to transfer to Oral Roberts. So Oral Roberts was important to me because it was like the Pentecostal charismatic flagship school. Sure. And so I was going to go to Oral Roberts. That's where I wanted to go. And I knew people I graduated from there. And I had been accepted to Oral Roberts, and I was going to transfer there, filling out my class schedule, all the above. And a little a notification popped up on the laptop for Liberty University, applied to Liberty University. Now, Liberty had actually offered me a full-ride scholarship two years prior. Well, actually, no, it was, it was my sophomore year of high school. They had offered me a full-ride scholarship. As and a I sophomore? turned it down. I was like, yeah, as a sophomore in, <laughs> in high school. You, I had like an assume. abnormally high PSAT or something on oh. verbal. So I just I had a verbal PSAT, so it spiked, and I got college scholarship offers for right now. My, my, my. Which didn't make any sense to me at the time. Uh, and now I, uh, you know, now I kind of kick myself because I'm like, this this was my way out. This was how I win, but I didn't, I didn't win. So, yeah, so I was like, ah, oh, man, I remember Liberty. And... The ad captured me because it promised Christian community, and it promised that you could have something called a prayer group in your dorm. Hmm. And I was like, "Yo, that's really interesting." So they 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 sold it on this idea of for every five students, there was one prayer group leader, a prayer leader, and so it's going to be some intense Christian discipleship. And I was like, "Yeah, these rules are a little bit much, and I can't grow out my beard, and I have to wear a belt all the time." And these rules just kind of seem weird. And at the time, you know, I was interacting with a lot of different types of music. And so I was expanding my worldview of culture. So I was like, yeah, it would probably be better for me to, to be in a, a not so conservative white Christian environment. I could see the holes and the flaws of the environment I've been raised in. And so I told my parents, I just filled something out, you know, really quickly. I filled out application. They make it super easy and they hound you like they keep hounding mm-hmm. you about it. And so I got accepted the last possible day that you could get accepted um, for that fall semester. And I'll never forget, I got that letter and my parents were like, all right, well, I guess, you know, if the scholarships line up and everything, you can go. So I ended up going to Liberty. But before that, here's what's interesting. My, my first semester at Liberty was the first Obama election in 2008. Mm, what is time to be alive? Yeah, which taught me so much about racial dynamics. But before that, 
I was, the seed had already been planted in one of the most consequential conversations of my life. And it was at a family reunion, the summer of 2008 at my house, my family from Mississippi came down and they brought my great, great uncle or no, my great, great grandfather, I think, but he was 103 years old. So they brought a 103 year old black man. I mean, living black history. And up until recently, like a couple of years before, he was still driving, still working in the yard. But by that time, his body had kind of debilitated down to where he was in a wheelchair. And so they were all there. And my aunt starts asking me questions about liberty. And so my aunt was my father's legal guardian, the oldest um, sibling in the family of eight children. And she starts asking me questions about liberty. So I give my answer. She said, okay, so what do they think about Obama? Hmm. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I mean, it's history and all, but, you know, they're, they're not, we, we don't, well, actually, I said we. I said, well, we don't really, you know, believe in his views of the world or whatever. And so she was like, like what? And so I was like, oh, well, you know, like the moral issues and the ethical issues and, you know, all these other things. And I was, I was given like high-minded answers. She said, well, what does your political view say about poverty? Hmm. So I was like, huh? What do you mean hmm. what does it say about poverty? She said, well, well, Obama is talking about reaching the least of these. Isn't that a Christian tenet to reach the least of these? Ooh. And she said, you've been a Christian longer than I have, but isn't that a Christian tenet to reach the least of these? I was like, well, yeah, but you know, you got to think about, well, what about healthcare? Because I know some people who don't have health care. Is that a Christian issue? And so we're going, and, and you know, I'm not the type of person to bag down, right? <laughs> no, you're not. But, but we were going back and forth, and she was positing questions I couldn't answer. She was the first person that connected what Henry Mitchell calls soul theology. I said, this isn't systematic theology. This is soul theology. This is mm. theology from the ground. This is theology mm. that smells like the earth. Hmm. This is theology that considers the poor and the the outcasts and the downtrodden and the marginalized and the disinherited. And she was going off. And she was like, how do you say you're a Christian if you don't care about people who don't have the same things you have? Shouldn't that be our politic? (laughs) (laughs) She was going. And I remember, look, she was. She was like, how is it that I've been in the criminal injustice system, is what Mm. she called it. It's Mm. not a justice system. How is it just that your cousin is locked up for 17 years for petty drug possession? Mm. How is it just? I mean, she was, I was like, yo. (laughs) So um, I was like, man, you know, I was reeling. But people, it was so funny because even in my conservative responses, they were like, Tyler, you should run for office. We would support you. Even she said, yeah, you should run for office. We would support you. Like we would get behind you. You know, your record is clean. Like you would be, man, you would be great as a leader. But they were challenging me, which is the black political ethic, right? Like they'll support people even if they disagree with them in certain areas because there's a unity and a loyalty that we have to one another. But I'll challenge you like hell, right? Like I'll challenge you and I'll push you and I'll force you to think and consider things and people you haven't before. And so, yeah, man, that was a seed of a conversation that really I think was watered by a lot of different sources and then produced 
what a lot of y'all see today. So this is this is the Liberty University the, of of Jerry Falwell Jr. fame uh, infamy, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and you get there as a black man. What's that like at Liberty? Well, it's interesting because at that time, Liberty was going through a dramatic shift because I think a year or two earlier, Jerry Falwell had passed and Jerry Falwell Jr., who you know, we call Jerry Jr., was the chancellor of the university. And so based upon him being the leader of the university, he kind of opened up the floodgates um, a little bit to Black students. So there are a lot of different Black students who were there. And we're getting scholarships. You know, at one point, Seth Curry, who's Stephen Curry's brother, who now plays, you know, in the league. I think he plays for the Mavericks or something, or uh, the 76ers. But Seth Curry was a freshman. He actually came there. So I was there at the same time Seth Curry was. He played basketball before he transferred to Duke, everything. So they were really opening up. Rashad Jennings, who, you know, eventually was a um, NFL running back, and he won Dancing with the Stars. You know, like like those guys – is this an intentional move? Like they, they wanted more yeah. black students? Okay. Yeah, it was. Yeah. As far as I know, it definitely was to diversify. Like that was the whole idea. But most of them were sports, right? Most of them were coming because of sports. Of course, yeah. And so when I got there, man, one of the things that was huge for me was, okay, I was in my prayer group and doing all this. And then I, we went to, there were a number of students that transferred from PCC to Liberty. And then I went to a some sort of gathering hangout situation. And it was a whole bunch of folks in this like indoor track or something. And these dudes just start stepping. And I was like, yo, who's that? They're like, um, or they were stepping or they were, they were stepping and then they were, um, you know, making a scene. They were, you know, doing certain things. And I was like, okay, who is that? And they were like, that's Alpha Nu Psi. And they're like, it's the only quote unquote frat on campus, right? It's the only frat, which is really, they weren't allowed to call themselves a frat. They were a brotherhood. And so I said, yo, those dudes look kind of dope. Like that would be cool. You know, I've seen, by that time, I think I've seen Stomp the Yard or You Got Served or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, you live by my You Got Served fantasy, right? <laughs> and um, so they're like, do you want to be a part? And so if you want to be a part and you want to be a part of the initiation and just kind of interest meeting, you can sign up. So I signed up, come to interest meetings like, 60 dudes at this joint, right? So I had a fraternity, a sorority, like 60 dudes. And so I just, I just, I'm like, man, this sounds dope. And so because I was a transfer, I was just used to being put through it, right? A lot of these dudes were freshmen. So because I was a junior, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll just show up early, you know, stay late, whatever, whatever it may be. And um, that was consequential for me because it didn't allow me to completely succumb to whiteness. Hmm. You had a black community there. I had a black community and I had a black community literally from day one. And so I was able to process my politics, my theology, all of that with my brothers. And so that was huge for me. That's massive. That was massive because I was actually strategically able. I didn't even go to a, I didn't go to a black church when I was there. I wasn't involved in any of that, but the the Alpha Nu Psi brothers were my black community. And so it's interesting because the night before the uh, election, the president, he was like, hey, I need, you to, I need you to host a forum for this election. He told me like three days before. He's like, I need you to host this forum. I was like, okay, cool. I'll host a forum. Like, what is this for? Who's speaking? He's like, whoever shows up. And I was like, huh? 
So basically, he wanted me to re- do a reverse town hall for him with with the students. However many students showed up. So, so what this I didn't was, know was here. This was the 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 president of the brotherhood. Yeah, the president of the brotherhood. Yeah, the president okay. of the brotherhood. And so he, what I didn't know is he had been advertising this everywhere for weeks. And it was part of my initiation, but I didn't know it. <laughs> like, can you, can you respond with composure in a tense setting? So because I did well, he let me cross like a week later, which was like the earliest they had ever done. Um, but because of that, I show up and I see all these opposing viewpoints. And it was a whole bunch of students that showed up. It was like 200 students. And I'm having to moderate a discussion between 200 students. And I don't know who these people are. You know, I barely know any of them. I barely know what they think politically. So I'm having to ask questions. Now, what was interesting was the black students in there were so passionate about Obama. Hmm. And they were so passionate about what he meant to them that it, it really moved me. And I was coming from the head and intellectually. I was like, what about this? What about that? But it was, they were, they were coming from a different place. So this carries over into the next night when we're all in the Vine Center, which is the big, you know, 13,000 seat auditorium. And Barack Obama is announced as the first black president. And all the black students rush down to the floor and start celebrating. Wow. And all the white students are sitting around in the stands with their arms folded, scowling. Yeah. Yep. And I, that was, that was the first time I was like, why am I not with them? Hmm. And when we were leaving, it it felt like there was police presence everywhere. There was arguments, shouting matches. It looked like there could have been a race riot. Like that's really, what, that's what it felt like. It on felt the campus like it was of this Christian riot. school. Yeah, it oh. felt like it. There was some very antagonistic actions going on, and I was like, "Oh, this could be like a riot." So I was like, "If but if this breaks out, who do I sit? Who do I stand with? Do I stand with my white friends from my dorm, or do I stand with my frat brothers?" <laughs> so mm. I'm like. What do I do? Like, you know, I'm just sitting there like, yo, so I'm having this internal crisis. Like, why is it that my people believe so strongly, but y'all tell me my people are wrong? My, my, my. Like, why is it that my people believe so deeply, but you tell them theologically they don't have a leg to stand on? Why is it that I don't have any black professors? Why is it that we don't read black sources? Why is it? I'm just asking all these questions. And yeah, that was a crisis moment for me. And that was kind of the first tectonic shift or the next tectonic shift that got me into where I'm at now. So what did you major in? I was a double major in broadcasting philosophy. All right. That is, that says everything. If I had a, <laughs> the, the course catalog, there it is. Hey, there it is. All right. Mike so, and the, the mic and the, and the syllogism. That's what I love. That's what I love. Uh, fits. That fits. So you graduate. What happens post Liberty? So I didn't graduate. Oh. Bing, bing, bing. <laughs> I'm not sure I knew this. Surprise. Say more. So yeah, man, I was a senior double major. Um, I was absolutely loving being at Liberty because even though I could recognize and see things that were wrong, and even though I started to become more aware of racism, I was like, man, this is just a place of flourishing. I could thrive here. I could expand here. And I got back from Thanksgiving break and I had two more semesters, three more semesters, I think, um, because I was adding courses because of my double major. And God wouldn't let me sleep and say, you got to go. As as clear as I could hear it. 
my parents didn't always pass down. They didn't pass down wealth. They didn't pass down connections and networking. But my parents passed down and trained in all of us the ability to pray and fast. Hmm. And so instinctually, when I, when I felt like I heard God, I said, I got to pray and fast. So I prayed and fasted for seven days, didn't eat anything, and barely slept, just drank water, didn't eat anything. And I was waiting on a scholarship to hit for my next year, my next calendar year. And they said, oh, yeah, you're going to get it. No problem. No worries. And then I called them on the seventh day and they said, yeah, you've been rejected. And I had a high GPA. Like I was involved in all this stuff. I was in student leadership. I was like, how in the world? And I remember God saying, no, I told you you're supposed to go. And so I dropped everything and I went back home. (laughs) <laughs> Whoa. That's literally how it happened. There was no expl- no explanation. I dropped everything and went back home. And I told my people, I was like, I'm leaving because God told me to go. And I remember crying and weeping. I was mad at God for years. I was just mad. Mm. Um, I get back home and you know, within a week, someone came to me and said, hey, I know you wanted to start a radio show, but what if you start a TV show like for young people? And then- the next day, our youth pastors just resigned at our church, just completely mm. resigned. And my dad said, hey, we'll get you some training. We'll take you through the minister's program. You know, you'll obviously do some you know, online theological training and some stuff, but I think this is God for you to step in. And I was mad at God, bro. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to yeah. be honest with you. Like, yeah. I just was mad at God, angry, and I felt like I was completely insufficient because my entire life had been... Prove yourself to white people by getting theological education or getting education. Prove yourself by showing them a bunch of degrees. Once I once they see my degrees, they can't dismiss me. Yeah. That was just my whole mindset, my whole idea. Brother, that's so and, so real, so common. I resonate. Yeah. I know a lot of people listening can resonate with that, that, that idea that we can get, you know, it's the attention, it's the attempt to get so credentialed that they cannot. Yeah. They can't dismiss you, uh, but that's it never I, works. That's what I thought. <laughs> it never that's works. That's what I thought. Yeah. And here's what's so interesting about this, Jamar, is I felt like God had sent me to the wilderness. Hmm. And I just this is just how I perceived it. I perceived where I was as the promised land. But I think it's interesting, Jamar, because we have to reframe our perception of what the wilderness is. Okay. And the wilderness is not always a place of consequence. The wilderness can be a place of clarity. Hmm. I had to experience the clarity that the tools that white evangelicals taught me weren't going to work in my black setting. Ah. That if I wanted to serve my people, I couldn't use the master's tools. That I had to come from another place that there was a ministry to be found in the wilderness that couldn't be found anywhere else. Hmm. And it reminds me of the passage of Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is in the wilderness and it says, I think it's in verse 11, the devil left him and then angels came and ministered to him. So there's a unique ministry that's found in the wilderness season. Okay, you preaching that now. That can't be found anywhere else, but I didn't realize it at the time. All I thought was the promised land is the place where white people approved of me. The promised land is the place where I have the degrees. The promised land is the place where people look at me as the leader. The promised land is not in the black setting. How could it be? 
I just have been indoctrinated into thinking of myself in a theology of inferiority. And what God was trying to tell me is, no, I need to clarify you and prove to you that the tools they gave you won't work in the place where I've called you. Woo! The tools God they can gave only you only do that. In won't the work in the place that I called you. My, my, my. God can only do that in the wilderness. See, he you can only rip me from that. What you're saying is a word. It's 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 a freedom word because what you're saying is white supremacy will have you thinking that Egypt is the promised land. Yep. Yeah. Thinking oh, you're in course. the promised land when Why? you're actually in Egypt, right? Why would you call me to the wilderness, God? Why would you call me? Because I need to put you in the backside of the wilderness for 40 years, Moses, so you can unlearn Egypt. Woo-hoo. And then you can come back and free your people. My, my, but you can't free your people. You, you, you look too much like them to, to say, let my people go. You know too much about, no, I need to take you so you unlearn all this, get new tools and come back. And you stand in my power, not wow. your degrees. <laughs> not not your not your your fancy cosigns, not your not your networking. And so my life has been that up until this point. It's been me recovering from and unlearning this mentality that whiteness has to approve me for me to be legitimate. Goodness. And but, that's yeah, that's so, when we met in 2012. That's really what, so that's there what I was is. wrestling with in that moment. That's where I'm going is you have this incredibly disruptive experience, right? So you suddenly not in school anymore, thrust into ministry in and among black people realizing, Oh, what they taught me is not going to work here. I must unlearn and relearn and apply. But in the midst of it, you're interested in reformed theology. Well, let me tell you why I was interested in Reformed theology. Please make it make sense. (laughs) I should say Calvinist theology because it really really wasn't covenantal Reformed theology as we traditionally know it. It was young, restless Reformed Calvinism because of Christian hip hop. There it is. Okay. All right. Get into that. So when I was 16 years old, I picked up a CD from a, and this is back when they sell the CDs, and I was in a Christian bookstore. And I picked up a CD from a group called Cross Movement Yeah, called Higher Definition. And I had never heard hip hop like that before. Because hmm. again, you know, you grew up in a very sheltered environment, all this stuff. And so they were, you know, breaking things down. It felt like a sermon. It felt like edification. And so you, you have uh, Cross Movement. And then I would go back every week and pick up a new CD. Cross Movement. Then um, The Truth, Moment of Truth. There it is. Yep. And it was it was the first the first thing he said is either this life is meaningless or its meaning is equipped by a series of events that satisfies for the moment. But once your moment is past, your moments to past and poof. Dude, you can't revive it or own it. You're born, you suffer, you die when you're older. But there's a loophole I wouldn't lie to my soldiers, nor to my sisters. God is my witness. Jesus Christ is the only escape from getting out of your prison or something like that. Yeah. And he just got into it. I was like, yo, this is crazy. Like, yo, this is amazing. And so for me, being in a white Christian environment, this was like, oh, yeah, we could have the Christian version of Jay-Z. There it is. Yes. <laughs> we yeah. could have Jay-Z without the cultural baggage. We could have Jay-Z without the sin. And then there's Flame. And then there's Lecrae and Triple E and all these folks. And after the music stops... And so, but the interesting thing about it was they were, they were putting all these things in 
in their music, but then they were referencing theologians. Right. And I was like, who are these theologians? Who is John Owen? Who is John Piper? Who is R.C. Sproul? Who is Mark Driscoll? Who are these folks? And so I'm like, oh, so if these dudes who look black and are having a cultural black expression are also referencing, which just kind of so happened to be all white <laughs> theologians mm. and pastors, mm. oh, well, these must be the solid dudes because it's producing something in them. So I'm like, oh, yeah, well, let me be a part of Christian hip hop. Let me, let me study this. Let me study that. And so that's what made me think, oh, well, I guess Christian hip hop is, is telling me, giving me the roadmap. And I didn't think anything of culture at that point. I didn't think of why is it that all the Christian hip hop tastemakers happen to be white? <laughs> I wasn't even processing that. Why is that all the theologians that we're referencing happen to be white? I wasn't even thinking about that. I wasn't processing it. Yeah. And it led for us believing that discipleship looked like whatever they co-signed. And there was this weird merger of, oh, the rapper is a pastor, really, because he's kind of preaching sermons on the beat. Hmm. And it was like, well, no, it's not. Your discipleship, yeah. Yeah. It becomes my discipleship. That's not discipleship. Like, what are you talking about? Like, these people aren't pastors. Like, they're artists. And it's great that they're conveying what they desire to do, but, and desire, you know, to say and what they believe. But it was weird, man. And the manhood and all that. And and it was, it was great. It was a great era and a great run. And there were so many great people that I learned in the midst of that and then ended up working in CHH journalism. Um, Yeah. You were doing reviews. Like you were in it, in it. You weren't just a fan or a consumer. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think it's a secret, but I was, um, I worked for Rabzilla for three years, I want to say, probably wrote over 100 articles, 200 articles, something like that. I don't know. It was just a lot. And then also did probably over 60, 70 interviews with Christian hip hop artists. I would go to events and write about it. Um, I was even sponsoring concerts out of my own pocket mm, mm. in the local area. Yeah, I was I was involved in the scene because I was like, oh, this is what's going to save the hood. The hood needs to be saved. Let's save the hood. Uh, it's just very colonial. Like I was like, oh, just save, just throw them a, a Lecrae beat and, and they'll come out. And then it'd be like, see, you don't have to have your negativity and all this. And I'm like, man, what is now I look back on it like, man, they were really teaching us. Christian hip hop is a great place to express your identity and an unhealthy place to find your identity. Hmm. Unpack that. And it, it was a safe place to express, it was a healthy place and a good place to express the identity you had already formed, but not a healthy place for you to work out the things that you needed to be doing in therapy and counseling, right? Like it wasn't a good place to get a fully orbed view of the world. And I think it was just dudes that were so passionate and it really shaped a lot of us into thinking that white was right theologically. And now we look at it and a lot of these guys, you're like, man, these dudes are kind of toxic. You know, these these theologians, but they were doing what they were doing the best that they could. You know, and Lecrae talks a lot about that. They were doing the best that they could at that time. And that's all they knew. So I was involved in that. And then in 2012, I was actually at a, you know, conference that was CHH based where I I met you. <laughs> the Man Up Conference. Yes, yes, yes. And I tried to get you to go to Reform Theological Seminary and dig into it, but you didn't. You didn't end up going. And I'm wondering what 
or how did you know that Reformed theology wasn't for you? Hmm. Yeah. So around this time, I was also diving deep into the Black church because that was my context. And every single time that I would try to incorporate or implement something Reformed or Calvinistic in my Black church context, it didn't work. Huh. And it just was not resonating. And I didn't think it was because of my people. I thought it was because of me. And then I was like, well, what if it's the theology? And so I was wrestling with this idea of, man, every time I try to apply something, I don't think it's like the, I don't think it's a lack of training. I don't think, I think the general base concept of how anyone could understand it was not resonating. And my black church, you know, elders and deacons were intelligent enough to pick it apart hmm. from a cultural perspective. So I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And I'll tell you, man, I wanted to be y'all so bad. I did. I wanted to be. I wanted to be like y'all so bad. You and and Phil. And for a time, it was Vody Bakum. I was like, man, Vody Bakum. He's just so solid. I was like, man, I need to be like Vody Bakum, man. He's just solid. You know, uh, he just yeah. drains everything of emotion. Like it's just straight up. Like man, those Vody Bakum, Vody Bakum. And I was like, I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I had Gardner. I was listening to Gardner Taylor, but I was like, oh, this is cheating. This is like liberal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is liberal. So I was yeah. listening to Gardner Taylor and, you know, Ralph West. And, and I was like, man, yo, these dudes preaching. But I would go to Vody for like the solid theology, right? Yeah, I was like, ah, oh, this is solid, 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 right? And and I wanted to be like y'all. I wanted to be like the Carl Ellis's. I wanted to be like the Shobaraka's. I wanted to be like all these guys who were reformed, and and I don't really know some of these guys, you know, it's kind of a thin line of whether or not they were reformed or not, but I wanted to be like the reformed dudes. And I'll tell you, Jamar, the moment when I knew, the moment when I knew I was never going to be one of those dudes was a conference that you and I were both at, and we were speaking at it. Day two of the conference rolls around. I go downstairs for breakfast because it was a special area for the speakers. And I text you. I said, hey, Jamar, come downstairs. They got breakfast. You're like, all right, bet. I'll be down there in a little bit. So I saw some people that I knew, but I just kind of passed by real quick. And I sit down. You come down. You're like a celebrity. (laughs) By this time, you hadn't written Color of Compromise yet. This was a few years before that. You're like a celebrity. So people like talking to you or whatever. Then you sit down, put your bag down, sit down at my table. And then uh, a black man who was well-known in that setting, I'll just say. Well-known in a certain denomination. I had never met him, but I looked up to him because he was like a name. Everybody spoke his name with such reverence. He sits down and starts talking to you. Now, again, I had never met him, and I'm coming from the environment of don't speak unless you're spoken to, right? So he's talking to you, trying to get you to do something and trying to convince you of something. And it was some opportunity or something. And I'm just sitting there minding my own black business, eating my breakfast. And you say, yo, he said, you say, you know who you should really talk to at some point is you should really talk to Tyler. Because I don't know if you know, but he's got pastoral experience. He's going to continue his theological education. He could be like a game changer in this setting. Like you should really talk to him. And as God is my witness, Jamar Tisby, 
Mind you, I'm minding my own black business. I'm sitting there. I look up to this person. So I'm like, my heart is soaring. Like Jamar just gave me a cosign. Mm. This man looks at you, keeps looking at you and says, yeah, I can't do anything with him. But back to you. Ooh. Which is right there. Did not even, it wasn't, it wasn't that he said it. It was how he said it. It wasn't how he said it. It was that he didn't even look at me, Jamar. And I'm going to tell you, when we got up, we got up, I, I excused myself, went to the restroom. I closed myself in a stall and I looked in the mirror. I said, I will never willingly be in the room with these dudes ever again. As God is my witness. Because this, and this is the thing, reformed men in general and reformed black men in particular have always been dismissive to me. Wow. Always. Yeah. I've never felt more dismissed than in the presence of reformed black men. Wow. And, and I, I hate to say it because it's a lot of them that I respect deeply and look up to. And it's not everyone, but it's constant. The dismissiveness. What is it about the theology and the culture and the experience that drains the love out of us? Mm. What is it? And, and this was hard for me because I'm a black man. So Black men historically for me in my life have been a place of safety. It was disorienting. They've been a place of safety for me. They've been a place of, of love and care for me. And I go into this environment and I'm completely, it's foreign to me that black men think, look down upon me. Mm-hmm. Like my church, I came from a place where my church, we celebrate everybody. Mm-hmm. From the youngest to the oldest, from the person who, who has a year of sobriety to the person mm-hmm. who just got an NFL contract. We celebrate everybody wildly. And I came into this setting. What, why is it that when I study the theology more, the deeper I get into the theology, the, the more I hate my people and myself? <laughs> why? Why is it I don't want to be around my people when I'm reading this stuff? Why is that? Is there something wrong with my people? Is there something wrong with me? And I'd ask this question. I'd say, do I, do, I, do I want to serve my people and love my people as God has called me to? Or do I want to hang on to this idea, I'm going to be one of these solid guys because that's what everybody said you're supposed to be. And mm-hmm. I, had to, I had to draw the line. I said, I'm, nev- I'm never going to be willingly in this group of people ever again. <laughs> so that's been, my, that's, that's, been my sta- that's been my statement. People I looked up to, completely dismissive of my personhood. And I'm like, man, it could be me. And I, I, that's what I think all the time. I'm like, oh, it's my fault. But what, what if it's not? How do you, how do you parse that? What do you, what do you think was going on or is going on? I don't know, man. You know, I don't know. I think there's a difference between theology and culture. And I think what has been cultivated over time is a culture. Here's something interesting about reformed culture that I noticed in reformed culture or Calvinist culture, white men and black men were indistinguishable. Mm. There's no difference. Ouch. Wow. There's no difference. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying generally on the ground, there's no difference. A white man, a black man. Okay. Same person. Seriously. What, what's the difference? Culturally identical. Culturally identical. Same thing. Same person. Like the same thing. Do the same thing. Dress there may the be a little way. bit of overlap. Dress the same way. Y'all the same person. <laughs> just so when I see, I'm like, oh, that's like a in other culture, denominational man. backgrounds, even in even in something like the IFB, 
which I've seen, when Black speakers and pastors and leaders showed up to our schools or our chapels, they were different for real. You could tell it. You could feel it. Oh, them, them dudes different. Even though I, I wouldn't agree with what they preached and their theology, they're different. In reform culture, it was like everybody was trying to be a white man. Ooh. And I was like, oh, man, you know, I like these dudes. And I was like, man, but they just trying to be white? Is this just, you know, white theology and blackface? What is this? And so, again, I don't think it was the theology, man. People are allowed to come to the theological conclu- conclusions that they feel. But, man, I tell you, bro, like, it was culturally indistinguishable. And so my thing is, what is it about reformed culture? And what is it about, man, I'll be in these, these Facebook groups and I'll be around reformed friends locally. And I was like, man, I don't really want to be around these dudes for a long period of time. Yeah. Because they start shaping they start talking about things. I'm like, man, what is this? It's not practical at all. And so again, it was just where God called me. And if people are still there, man, dope. But I'm just saying my experience, I've never been more dismissed. Never felt more dismissed. So people are like, why did you change the name? I'll tell you this. I never told you this. You didn't change the name from Reformed African American Network to something else. I was leaving. That's how serious it was. I was like, I'll do something else. (laughs) <laughs> I don't have to be a part of a collective. I don't have to be a part of a big national organization. I'll be on my own. I, I need to get away from these folks. It's triggering for me to be yeah. around these folks. You know, and that's how it was. But, you know, that's just my experience, my story. I am grateful and pained <laughs> to hear this perspective because I was so deep in it. You know, I can look at pictures of myself from... Yeah, the early totally 2000s. Bro. <laughs> bro. Totally different. <laughs> because it's like what you said. Black men and white men in these circles were indistinguishable. Yep. Um, and 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 it would have it 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 had me cut my hair a certain way, uh, you know, wearing the wearing the the uniform of the khakis and the navy blue blazer with the gold buttons and Brown shoes, man. I was yeah, all man. You was trying, you were trying, you were trying to sell me on RTS. I was like, bro, I don't want to look like that. Like yeah, I'm just, yeah. I was gonna be, I was gonna be straight. Look, I'm straight up with you, and I know some people who, you know, you know, who survived out of that environment and retained their culture and praise God for that. But I was like, man, I don't want to be around. And then the heat, and then this was what got me. You were playing by all the rules, and you had all the pedigree, and you were the cream of the crop. And they were treating you like dirt. I was like, Ooh. I was like, man, y'all ain't. They were like, man, you know, Jamar and all this. I'm like, yeah, but y'all treat Jamar like trash. Why would I want to be around y'all? Y'all treat Jamar like trash, man. I, I ain't you got know, no shot. <laughs> you that's know? that's one of the things that we don't talk as much about is the elitism in these circles. Yep. Yep. You didn't go to you know, the right school, have the right degrees. And then within these circles, there are the, you know, they, they have their own sort of short list of quote unquote Ivy league seminaries or whatever it might be mm-hmm. people to study, study under. And if you're not part of that, then you're on a lower rung and then heaven forbid you're, you're a black person or a person of color. And certainly, you know, we didn't even touch on gender and how horrible exactly and toxic this environment can be for women, especially and, black women. And that's another thing. You know, I was like, man, I want to, I want to marry Malina. Hmm. And she was asking all these questions about the allergies. Like, mm. 
She was like, why you like this? Why you like that? You get in marriage, it doesn't work like that. You're like, wait a second. <laughs> this book said this. And it's like, man, that was toxic. You know, that was patriarchy. Like that wasn't a reasonable expectation as a husband. It's patriarchy. And that was another thing, right? That was a whole thing. I came home on this whole crusade. Women aren't supposed to lead. Complementarian. And my parents were like, yo, what? You've never been complementarian. Like explain this. Hmm. And they would sit there and listen to my arguments and whatever I heard from whoever was the theologian flavor of the week. And they would say, man, you, this is not biblical as we understand it. Like, what about this perspective? What about this? What about this in the Greek? What about, I mean, my dad would go deep with me. You're like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so said. But, but, but yeah, <laughs> right? I read but it like, on the blog. <laughs> yeah, I read it on the blog. And it's not like, if that's your conviction, that's your conviction, whatever. But I'm just saying like, that's like a, that's another element. I just want to baptize my space in whiteness. I want to right. baptize my space in Calvinism. I want everybody to look like what I thought was theologically accurate. Who told you this though? That's what they would say. Who told you this? Yeah. And who told you? Who taught you to hate yourself, son? That's it. Without saying it, without saying it, you know? So, well, and man, hey, I don't, hold, I don't hold it against them. I just say, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to the Lord that that wasn't the space that I was called to because it was actually a freedom and a liberation that came shortly thereafter. I'm going to... Pretend like my heart didn't just skip a beat when you said you were that close to leaving. <laughs> if we didn't change the name, I'm I'm grateful. Oh, bro, I was gone. We dodged that bullet. It was bullet. gone, bro. It's gone, bro. I was gone. Uh, I was gonna send you. I was gonna send you. I was like, man, I'll transition out. I'll do whatever. I'll take as much time as you need. But this ain't for me, man. I ain't going back to these settings. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I was done. Wow. I, wow. We went to one more conference after that where that man who had said that dismissive thing to me was around. I'm sure he's a great guy. So, you know, I don't hold it against him. I just stayed clear away from him. I was sparse. You invited me to something. I was like, nope, not going to be there. <laughs> y'all and were, and, and see, for me, y'all were heroes. It was you. It was it was Akemini, Christina, Michelle. Y'all were superheroes to me. Y'all were the Avengers. And y'all, as great and as wise and as brilliant as y'all were, they were still treating y'all like trash. I said, it's not for me. <laughs> I know it's not for me. That's for sure. I can remember that shift. Uh, like, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I realized in that moment at that table at breakfast, you know, what that man said and how that, how that affected you. But I could see 2016, 2017, you were like, mm. you know, every time I would bring up reformed this, reformed that, you're like, but is it though? So what what people don't know is Jamar and I had this huge argument at Joy and Justice Conference, this insider. We were at Joy and Justice Conference and they were reaching out to us and they were recording us for some sort of research project for the church. It was in the middle of day two and Jamar and I, Jamar said something about Reformed Theology and I I was like, I was so tired and I hadn't eaten. I was like, but is it? (laughs) And you were like, what do you mean? And we just start arguing in front of these people. They're recording. They saw, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were recording. They were video recording us. So they saw our body language. I was like, bro, it don't, it don't, <laughs> the math don't add up. And you were like, nah, but what about this and this? I'm like, it don't matter. And we were going back and forth. Listen, for for the low, low price of whatever, I'll get you that. <laughs> that <video. laughs> 
Nah, that don't need to come out. I'm messing. I'm messing. I'm messing. Nah, that's you in the archives. That you won that one. That's in well, the archives forever. That's in the archives forever. Well, somebody asked me recently, like, you know, once you divest, once you come out of these circles, where do you go? What what's yeah. is it is it the wilderness? Yeah. I think for everybody it's different, man. I had a place that I called home that loved me enough to invite me back and to welcome me back. And I want to say this about my home church and my hometown. They really let me work through this. And they loved me the same in every stage of my journey. I mean that. And they went hard for me in every stage of my journey. And they supported me whenever I said I was going to do something. When I started my TV show, they supported me. They were there every weekend for these recordings. When everything, they were just, they were always there. When I preached like a reformed pastor, they were, they would say amen to what they could understand <laughs> from my from my high-minded whatever, trying to be like whoever. When I started preaching like I was one of them, they said amen. When I was leading their, their children and teenagers, they supported me. They rode hard for me in every stage of my journey. I think it's something people don't understand. And I know people, people have different experiences with Black church circles and with Black denominations and non-denominational churches. And there's a lot of harm that's been perpetuated. And I completely understand that. And I hold space for that. And I don't dismiss that. I'm just saying for me, they loved me so well, so fiercely, so deeply. And they gave me space. And when I came back home and then they cheered me on, they did. Yeah. And so what I found was I found home um, in a place that I thought was a wilderness. Again, sometimes, man, when you think that the wilderness, I am okay with not having all the opportunities. Don't think they don't come. They do. And I think this is the, this is the reality of many of our, of our Black people who are considering leaving loud. They're like, I've got this opportunity. I've got this check. I've got this reality. I've got this job offer. I understand all that. And I, I hold space for all that. And I think that's that's dope. I've got kids too. Like I get it. I got bills I have to pay. But man, there is a freedom that comes with knowing that the only person that's your source is God Almighty. That there might be people who provide the resource, but there's only one source. There's a freedom. There's a tune. Your voice tunes at a different frequency. Your heart beats at a different rhythm. Your soul moves on a different plane when you know they don't, they don't put you on. They couldn't put you on. They didn't give it to you and they can't take it away from you. Yeah. When you know that that joy you have the world didn't give it, white evangelicalism didn't give it, and they can't take it away. You act, you live, you move differently. And so I think the first thing that people have to understand is wherever you are, even if it's in the wilderness, find freedom. Find healing and freedom. Get free first. Freedom is not a place, it's a reality. Hmm. It's a person, really. It's Jesus. 
But find that freedom, y'all. Find a place that wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, you are your full black self. This is one thing I can say about me now. I know you're going to get all of me. I'm only going where I'm celebrated, not where I'm tolerated Yeah, permanently. If I pass yeah. through or say something at a different event, whatever, you know, different things come up. But I'm saying permanently, I'm only going where I'm celebrated, not where I'm tolerated. If I can't be all of me with the locks and the loud laughing and the physicality and and the words strung together and the, the breathless articulation and all of that, if I can't be all of that in that setting, I don't want it because I owe it to my kids I owe it to my children. We were talking about generations. I owe it to them for them to see their father free. That's what I want. I want my kids to see me free. I I don't remember much about dad back in those days, but here's what I remember. He was free. And he lived like that. And he spoke freedom. And he told us to be free. And he loved us, our full selves, our beautiful black selves. He loved us so well. He was free. That's what I hope they can say. Freedom is not a place. It's a reality. My, my, my. Well, man, one of the many things I appreciate about you is that you are not trying to keep freedom to yourself. You have poured out yourself to help other people get free. And you are unashamed and unapologetic about a specific group of people getting free, black people. Yeah. And so now you're at this stage where I can feel so confident about the direction of the black Christian collective of which you are the president because you have made it your goal, your focus to aim, your aim to... Be Christ-focused and Black-centered. Yeah. But I don't think people really understand what, what being Black-centered means, right? If, if somebody hears this and they're like, oh, that's that's Black supremacy, that's racist, that's, you know, <laughs> bigoted, prejudice, whatever. What do you, how, how do you explain what it means to be Black-centered? Well, I think first it's not caring about that perspective. <laughs> right. And uh, I mean that with all love. I, if you think I'm a Black supremacist or a racist, this isn't for you. Um, And I don't take much thought into that. Um, That's number one, right? I think number two, the best way I can say it is this huge gap between post-liberty reform theology to now is I have discovered the refreshing, crisp, soul thirst quenching well of black history, black church, black theology. I've discovered Mm -hmm. the well that seems to never run out. There is enough with us. There is enough, enough of us and there is enough from us. We don't need anyone else. And that was the realization that the realization that made me say, Oh, I can be black centered because if I only pull from my people, there's enough with us. Here, here's the, the principle. Um, Elisha's servant. Where's the army? Open his eyes, God. Hmm. 
Oh, it's angels all up in the, oh, whoa. There are more with us than with them. Mm. Mm. There's more. There's more. Which is a you massive. You just need the eyes to see it. You need the eyes to see it. <laughs> you just didn't, you didn't know it was possible. That's why we do what we do. Oh, you didn't know it was possible for black women to speak freely about their experiences. Okay, well, that's why we do what we do. You didn't know it was possible for someone who came out of a white setting, white Christian setting, to speak in the tune of freedom. Okay, that's why we're here. You didn't know, but we're here to show you. There's more that are with us than with them. And so when I sit back and I, and this is the thing I'm so confident of, there are scholars I haven't read yet. There's pastors I've never heard of. There's Christian leaders doing things I can't even imagine. There's black activists who are reimagining what it means to resist. Hmm. There are black artists and artisans and creatives who are changing the way we view the world. There's black healthcare professionals who are creating the next vaccine for the next pandemic. There's more with us. <laughs> There's enough in our tradition. And if you don't believe that, you don't have eyes to see yet. But I pray that you have eyes to see. That's why we're Black-centered. Because the world needs to know. <laughs> the world needs to know. And first, we need to know that there's more with us. That's why, that's why I'm Black-centered. That's why I believe in it. <sighs> it's going to take me a while, man, to un unpack what you said throughout this entire episode. Man, I just want to thank you for your honesty, your vulnerability, your transparency, and your journey and owning it and uh, revealing the parts that, you know, looking back, we're, we're not so proud of or, or we think, what on earth was I doing? But in that are, I think, the most powerful lessons. So, man, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for leaving loud. Hey, man. All for my people, brother. All for my people. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.